Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Professor Clara Han about her new book, Seeing Like a Child, Inheriting the Korean War. Clara, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, no, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk about your wonderful book that is so different from any other scholarship that I have seen. Um, and I'm sure the uh, listeners are really excited as well. Um, Clara, I wonder if we can begin the interview with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, so I am Clara Hahn. I'm an anthropologist. I um, am an associate professor at in the Department of Anthropology at Johns Hopkins University. Um, I've worked for a long time on issues of uh, poverty and health um, and uh, state violence, um, mainly in um, actually for a long time in uh, Chile and Santiago, Chile and low income neighborhoods. Um, and more recently, as you see with the with this publication, uh, seeing like a child, I've I've started to kind of think through questions of uh, violence and subjectivity, um, starting with my own family uh, in the context of Korea. Mm, yeah, and you talk about this uh, in the introduction of your book, how you came to like uh, right seeing like a child. But I wonder whether you could also tell the listeners about how you came uh, to write seeing like a child, which is so different from uh, your previous work. Um. So actually, uh, this book project really um, it didn't really start out as a book project per se. It wasn't hadn't been conceived of as a book project. It really started out as a conversation um, with my friend who at the time was a graduate student, actually, uh, he's now a colleague, um, uh, on uh, really thinking through the memories, uh, the inheritance of, um, or inheritance of familial memories of catastrophe uh, from his perspective of uh, his grandparents who had been um, survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, and from my perspective in terms of 
how it is that I, you know, uh, that our family has, has inherited uh, the catastrophe of the Korean War. Um, and so it became, it was a kind of ongoing conversation that we would have, like chats and having coffee with each other and so forth. And we were invited to uh, give a paper, um, like to, um, at a conference about this. We had been talking to other people about this. And so this was our first attempt. Uh, we essentially um, started by writing uh, and just kind of like allowing memories to kind of come to us like a rush uh, on the page. Um, and then we would uh, trade these trade our writings with each other and read them and then have a conversation. And it became this process of writing, um, you know, allowing um, these memories to rush to the page and then uh, discuss them that became the, the basis of, of the book. Um, so eventually I kind of took this forward, this experiment forward um, more fully with um, um, by writing by essentially then writing this book. Um, and that's and that's how it kind of started to take shape. So this wasn't something that I thought about um, by myself or um, you know sitting <laughs> in front of a desk by myself, but but actually was very much an expression of uh, both my family and also the intellectual community uh, that I'm embedded in. Yeah, mm, yeah, I remember. Yeah, you did write about that in the introduction, and I also thought it was interesting how uh, the foreword is provided by a, a fellow scholar. And uh, I wonder whether you can comment on the uh, importance of these like intellectual communities uh, that you had uh, in graduate school, and then. Uh, I guess uh, now you're teaching at John Hopkins, so uh, within the academic spaces that you have uh, migrated across. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think that what was, in some ways, what was really interesting um, about this writing, this um, this work, this is 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 this um, the fact that this intellectual community that I am in and try to sustain is very much. Um, interested in and committed to thinking through or thinking at the, if we, if you will, the margins of the discipline. Right. Um, And, and it's not just, I mean, and it's really, you know, so, so, so in in a sense, it actually brings out, you know, some of the questions around how we think of self-knowledge and anthropological knowledge, right? Like this is anthropological knowledge, simply professionalized knowledge or, how do we think about the ways in which um, self-knowledge and anthropological knowledge actually are imprinted on each other? Um, and so, uh, you know, Richard Reckman, for example, who wrote the foreword of the book, um, is a psychiatrist and anthropologist um, who's um, worked with uh, Cambodian refugees in France uh, for a very long time. And, and he wrote, uh, he has done a lot of work uh, not simply on a critique of uh, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, PTSD, or a critique of the discourse of trauma, but rather he tries to get inside what it is um, to inhabit an everyday life that's within um, within death, if you will, like in the in the context of genocide. Um, and so he 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 tries to kind of make available that subjective experience that is in excess of um, the categories that uh, disciplinary knowledge makes available that is either within anthropology or within um, um, psychiatry. Um, and, and likewise, you know, um, Vina Das, who um, many of us know, uh, 
in the humanities and social sciences has been really important in, you know, just working with her has been extremely important for my own growth as a scholar and a person in the sense that she does, has presented most powerfully to me and to many others, but for myself, um, how to kind of, uh, a, a way in which we might think of thought as a movement of dissent and rather than actually um, try to grasp for a super concept in order to kind of put it, put experience onto a grid, um, it rather is the movement would really be to have that open curiosity to, to actually gain an attentiveness to, um, to words, right. To the life and death of words among us. And, and that I think, um, you know, comes with a lot of methodological challenges and, um, and that it's, that's those sets of conversations that in a sense, I think, um, you know, in a way, uh, allowed me to receive the experiences in my family um, in ways that I hadn't been able to uh, before. So that's why I don't think that there is a very neat, you know, cut or you know, secure boundary between self-knowledge and anthropological knowledge. Um, I couldn't have written this book without the life that I've had, right? But I wouldn't have been able to have the experience available had I not actually been open to this kind of anthropological knowledge or exposed to it. So, so, and, and because I have the, had the life that I've had, that knowledge also resonates with me. Right. So, so it's, it's not quite clear to me what the, you know, you know, it's, it, it, I actually, I think that there's these ways in which self-knowledge and anthropological knowledge are imprinted on each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And you talk about that with a uh, you know, perspective of a child as well, when you criticize how I is often seen as a fully formed like person with you know the categories of the war and history that is really defined that informs anthropological practices um so you criticize that in your book which i thought was just very uh, beautifully put um but I wondered, um, because yeah, I was thinking about that uh, with you know my work as well, and uh, I found it very inspiring. Like, uh, what was the process like for you to you know try to like recover this voice of the child without um, you know recoursing to the neat narratives of like adulthood and you know like the preset categories that the scholarship really relies on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think that it was, it's really a question of, you know, for myself, it was really a question of having a fidelity to the memory. Um, and so, you know, it's, so for example, I mean, I would give like, there's like examples, like, right. It, for example, I could tell you like, you know, I remember when I was being tested for, um, for the, they, they would give these IQ tests to children at that time. And so I was being tested in order to figure out what grade I would be placed in. Um, and, you know, an adult might relate it in terms of like for an adult memory of that child, you know, it's like, Oh, well, and then, you know, I was tested and I was put into this room and they were giving me these standardized tests. But, you know, as a child, I didn't know what a standardized test was right? Like that category standardized test did not even exist to me yet. Like standardization did not exist to me yet. So it, you know, it, you know, so if I were to actually stay true to that particular memory, it would be, you know, 
describing the I mean, what I see in my mind, for example, is that the boots of the of the test of the woman who was testing me, like these she had these brown boots, big, big brown, brown brown boots, and then she kept staring out the window and saying, and she would say, "Tell me the difference between a brick house and a wood house." And I said, "I don't." Uh, and I was, I think, just waffling. She's like, and then she would just repeat, and she just stares out the window and says, "A brick house or a wood house," you know? and so you just. <laughs> it's like uh um so it's it's that kind of description right of these impressions you know that is not necessarily one that you're gonna and what does that tell you that kind of that detail right that what the child kind of remembers you know i can actually for example even what uh what my daughter would describe it's very interesting to see how like only in the last maybe i would say month or two uh, she's four now. Has she really massive, in some ways, clearly absorbed narrative form? Like this happened, then this, then this happened, then this, like in re- relating a story, right? Um, and, and, and before that, actually, it, you know, if she went to, for example, like I, we went, we were in Seoul, this was when she was two. And it, we, she was so amazed by these being on buses, like so many buses, very long bus rides, <laughs> <laughs> people sleeping on the buses right <laughs> and so like you know a couple of months later after we had come back mm-hmm. all of a sudden she's like looks at me and she says the woman's head on the the woman's heads um um on the bus seat just bobbing up and down and i'm like she's like the dark tunnel and, and I said, what? Like, and it was just kind of like, whoa. But the reason I could understand what she was saying was because I actually had a much larger world with her. I share, I share the world with her, right? And so then I thought, black, you know, dark, long tunnels, a woman's head bobbing on the bus seat. When has that happened? That has happened in Seoul. She's talking about, you know, this. And, and this, and it's like these kind of impressions that are these almost like, non-linearly strung together almost like this kind of weave of impressions um which actually somewhat reminds me of hangan's um you know uh, uh memoir you know these this weave of impressions is actually um you know how the child relates this memory the very small child relates these memories right um, before simply locking these into narrative and even now like you know even as ella has you know absorbed narrative form it's not that she's simply relating her experience in narrative form because we even it's not like a developmental question where all, you reach a stage and then everything else falls away it's that that form now resides next to these other ways of relating your your world right mm, yeah and, and so, and so it's instead of actually kind of emphasizing that impulse in us to have that um, you know, linear narrative form or these uh, particular adult categories that show a kind of false mastery. Uh, I, I really, really try to um, just go into I, how, I, I don't know how to explain, uh, describe it better than right from the inside um, of memory. Um, and, and see actually, what does that what difference does that make? You know, like what does that make available to us uh, and to myself um, uh, in, in understanding um, how uh, catastrophe um, is dispersed in everyday life? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and that relates to the part one of your book, Loss and Awakenings. Also, what is interesting about you know what you're telling um, us about with Ella and how uh, she suddenly you know randomly says, oh, you know the dark tunnel. Um, and then you can reference it back to Seoul. So uh, there, there's also an yeah interesting overlap uh between like uh spaces and temporality. So they're not necessarily linear or uh, logical, quote unquote. Um, but then they're kind of like interspersed and like intersecting one another. And that's also what you talk about in the part one when you uh, talk about how the catastrophe of war is seeped into everyday domestic realms in terms of, um, you know, your mother's uh, stroke and, uh, you know, the traumatic experiences that uh, you had in Los Alamos. Um, and even though you weren't directly experiencing the Korean War itself, um, the fantasy world that you had about oh, you know, your mom being a princess and then, um, you know, your dad um, also, like, his trauma with having been dispersed at Isangajok, displaced families that also all interlocking together to inform your own childhood and your understanding of yourself. Um, so I found that to be, like, hugely interesting as well. So I wonder if you can tell us all uh, tell us a little bit more about how this um you know how the trauma of the korean war and displacement that um your parents experienced informed your own childhood and your self um, identity mm. so yeah actually i just wanted to kind of that yeah I, yeah I wanted to actually back up a little bit in terms of the questions of um of trauma and i think that that's actually i mean one of the uh, you know one of the the um issues has been really to try to kind of work around the discourse of trauma rather than be within the model of trauma because one of the, the you know because the tra- because the model of trauma does um, uh, d- d- is based on a notion of the event that actually is something that you can point to such to the extent that um, you know the event uh, you know it's like to the extent that you know it's not the individual per se that or the collective like the family that matters but rather the wound that actually stands in for um for the singularity and so that um and we've seen that with um you know the way in which the institutional apparatus of trauma works um you know in, in legal regimes in relation to um cases of uh you know for example mass rape um we've seen that um you know um so, 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 you know, so I think that this, there, there are some issues with, with thinking through the, the model of trauma, um, and, and, and even to the extent of actually saying that this is, uh, this is a, a question of a transmission of trauma. I, um, the, the, what I'm trying to show in the, in the, in the book and what I've really um, you know, is, is really that not, it's not so much a question of a transmission of an event of like those who directly experience then pass it on through these various symptoms to the children, which is, there is a theory of this, you know, we've, you know, this kind of transgenerational haunting and so forth. Uh, but rather is to really see how a child actually comes to, um, inherit, that is to say, inherit as in, uh, you know, claim as one's own, in building a world, the, the child world, right? Uh, making intelligible a world for oneself. Uh, how does those do, how does um, catastrophe 
come to be marked within the child world, right? And and and, and so it's actually a, a different um, model, as it were, framework for 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 engaging um, the problem of catastrophe uh, and uh, and violence. And so and and to actually also you know say, well, what is a you know when we say this is world annihilating violence versus um, you know. Uh, the 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 kind of routinized forms of violence you know poverty like how do we actually you know or like the, there's these small violences and big violences you know i it's it's also trying to kind of destabilize that i mean in a sense the it it's it, you know the the war uh is is it's not simply just that my father and my mother actually were displaced by war and then had a you know, and then this happened in terms of illness, but rather it it is in fact actually that, you know, the illness, the affliction in the household is actually, was and has been um, catastrophic, right? Um, and that, that um, and so how, you know, and, and that that catastrophe of, of a loss of home um, is actually what, in some ways makes available the catastrophe of displacement and war in our lives. And so, um, you know, it, I, I think that that is in, in some ways what I was trying, what, I mean, in some ways I was surprised to discover for myself. I didn't know this really quite know it in the sense of being aware and awake to this myself. But when I came to actually write from within the, memories of my childhood um what what emerges is what first emerges is is the affliction right um um, with my mother but affliction is never simply just one individual it's actually these relationships right Um, and so uh and so it's there that i actually kind of started to think through how this uh, how we might think of war as embedded within um, within affliction. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah thank thank you so much for clarifying that as well i wasn't familiar with the uh, trauma scholarship but then i mean you uh, do talk about it in your work but i think talking to you about it is like also like helping me to like really clarify my understanding of it as well and i guess it also relates to um the foreword that's written by reckman and then you do write about how 
um, in a way, like, yeah, there uh, is a break in scholarship between, yeah, the big traumatic events versus, you know, the small domestics. But then um, your purpose is to um, show that, uh, to deconstruct and, like, destabilize that bound- boundary. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for clarifying that. And that actually leads me to uh, the next question, uh, which is, I think it's like very related because you criticize uh, the theory on racial melancholia as an insufficient concept uh, because um, in a way it does it doesn't reject the dominant narrative of you know the racialized like you know wanting to assimilate and um provides like a presents like a very singular like one-sided portrayal of um the racialized like uh you know always wanting to be uh like within uh this dominant and uh you show with your example of your dad and how he rejects korea as a country and uh, in a way like how for him um he wanted to be like uh like assimilated and it wasn't it didn't fit into this like concept of racial melancholia and um you also says that you know you can see it rather as a labor of stealing rather than transmission um uh, and then um how you can recreate uh your voice through i guess like this like uh, creative like processes of uh, like appropriation and also reception and uh recreation through like diverse languages that have that you have at your disposal so um i, I feel like i didn't explain it uh, as clearly as you have done in your book but can you actually tell us more about uh you know how you came to like uh, understand um uh, this in terms of like language um, and how you are kind of criticize you're criticizing this notion of like I guess like nostalgia like a uh, home root country and yeah racial melancholia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the, the the I I mean I guess my issue uh, my my concerns with around racial melancholia. Um, I mean it's not it, is is for example when you look at the the actual case studies right um, and you know. One of the issues that I think I tried to point out in the book is that um, there is a, a certain violence when that happens when uh, you know the the when the U.S. racial when U.S. racial politics becomes the dominant politics uh, by which to understand um, you know the the familial memories or uh, you know um, you know. The, the madness that comes with migration, uh, that, um, and I, I, I think that what that can do, I mean, I understand the critique here. I understand the, um, the, 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 the critique of the, uh, of the, of this coercion of whiteness, which I, 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 in some sense also do agree with that there is a coercion of whiteness, right? We cannot deny that. And we've seen that, um, even more um, kind of in, in the most vitriolic form in the past year with uh, the xenophobic, uh, uh, you know, discourse that has, um, you know, been so intensified in the United States um, with COVID. Uh, but, um, but I think that, you know, when it, when we're, if I were to have a fidelity to the Korean War, right, um, and to my parents, right, 
Um, I couldn't simply just say that the issue here uh, is one in which they're being uh, forced to assimilate and they're attempting to secure whiteness and thus I'm trying to secure whiteness and thus failing at securing whiteness. It's not that, right? I mean, clearly there are racial politics involved uh, in the United States and it's not that I'm immune to them and my family hasn't been either. Um, But um, that framework uh, really does tend to suppress the politics within uh, within Korea, right? Um, and you know, kind of reduce the question of Korea to simply like a site of war, like a chaos and destruction, rather than a really deep set of political intellectual commitments, right? That have a history, right? Uh, and so I this is why I do also resist that. And, you know, my father, you know, I would say that um, it's not only just that, as I said, it wasn't, it made me realize that he's not, he's not simply just rejecting Korea in general, right? He it's he actually hates Korea, right? But he hates it because they, we, because there's no way to be Korean today without being a North Korean or a South Korean. And that is what he doesn't want to have to acknowledge, you know? Um, and that I think um, the sense of betrayal that the, that Korea in some ways had betrayed him, right. Um, is, is what he actually kind of lived with. So he didn't want us learning Korean because it wasn't just about excelling as minority children. It was about, the fact that he wanted to obliterate Korean from us, right? That is to say, obliterate it before it was born, right? Um, and that is, so to under, it's, it's really understanding that political affective impulse that would be different than my mother who was, you know, really, the, there was such a different relationship to Korean. I mean, that that is to say, the identification of herself as South Korean. She comes to Clark University in 1953, um, and she has hung the teguki up uh, above her desk, right? You know, I mean, it, 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 the 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 way in which we were brought in as diaspora, you know, as the children of who would be part of this, you know, diaspora that would rebuild South Korea, actually, is a completely different politics then and you know kind of then the kind of politics my dad espoused which is not about valorizing north korea but rather saying neither of these places should exist at all a complete rejection of um contemporary political coordinates (laughs) right (laughs) so so, which i think is really interesting um you know uh you know, which also tells us, you know, this is this is also how war is embedded in us. You know, the fact of that we inherit uh, Korean um, in this way, which is through this kind of obliteration and this other impulse, right? But that that impulse of my mother, in some ways, kind of gets cut short when she uh, becomes sick, right? Um, that we simply this is this is 
you know, this is this is how we might we might say that I inherited Korean. Um, and so the picture of language here, and also this is one way in which I might say I learned English, right? Mm-hmm. Because this was in fact um, what um, this, uh, the fact that we might, you know, we weren't allowed to, I mean, my parents didn't speak um, Korean to us in the household, even though my mother would have found it so much more comfortable to speak Korean uh, to us. Um, like this is a way in which we learn English, right? And um, And so, in a way is to say that this, you know, the picture of language here is not one in which um, it's this, this kind of simple um, accruing of linguistic abilities, right? Like, or thinking of language as simply linguistic, right? It's rather one, you know, language in terms of how we understand how like words and how words and things come to meet each other. It's coming to learn what it is to be in a world, right? Um, and so, and so that's actually um, um, what I was trying to kind of uh, get at in terms of, 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 or kind of discover in terms of, of, of language, um, and, and 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 that would actually, um, and then it's it's there that you know this question of finding one's voice, which I mean in the sense of this is where I think you know Stanley Cavell's work is really helpful. Um, that is actually you know you might be born with, you know, what he calls your mother tongue, right? Uh, but that you actually have to commit treason mm. <laughs> on your parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like you're like stealing your voice, right? Stealing yeah. right? Um, in order to actually kind of project your own voice, right? And it's that actually that I kind of found that in, in a way it's also the fact of my, my having my labor of learning uh, in some ways, also the linguistic capacity of Korean, right. Which is also the fact that I even do labor in that, <laughs> where, which was a, which, you know, initially my dad had, you know, my father had completely just thought was bizarre. Right. But now is, you know, um, it had, it, in a way it actually has allowed him to have a, a home when actually uh, like word retrieval for him is very difficult now. So if he can speak it in, he speak, if the word comes in Korean, I still know what he's saying, you know, and it would just be one word. Right. But at least I'm able, there is a, an ability to, to be understood. Right. So it's, it, it, I think that, you know, um, yeah, so it's this question of like finding one's voice in terms of, uh, not in terms of uh, simply of just linguistically learning Korean or any language per se, but rather that one has to actually then, you know, come to, you know, one has to in some ways commit treason on the parents, <laughs> right? And actually find a way to actually, um, uh, you know, kind of claim one's voice through that. So it's this question of recreate. This is how culture essentially is animated, right? Because because we actually have to project our own desires, right? In our in in through our words, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a really important insight, and uh, yeah, I, I really loved what you said about uh, yeah how like you wanted to show that language is not simply about uh, accruing linguistic ability, but rather about uh, how you like place your things and like also like the self uh, like in relations to others, and I think you showed that really well too. Like when you talk about that. Uh, German and how you um yeah uh, talk with your siblings in German and how it's like a language of childhood that brings solace and uh, solidarity like even when the times get difficult and your dad enjoys that because for him it's a language of escape um because like when he wanted to go to grad school like German English and like Russian uh, allowed him to imagine an academic life beyond Korea um. So yeah, so I thought those like yeah emotional like aspects to be like very emotional and relational aspects to be very uh, illuminating as well. Yeah, um, and uh, that also leads me to uh, the next question, which is uh, in part three, kids. And um, so yeah, talking about you know your relationship with your siblings, um, you also uh, make a really interesting point about how uh, you know rather than seeing one's identity as a unique individual, which is often done in the you know liberal West, um, uh, you show that you know sibling relations reveal the coexistence of togetherness and separateness that is simultaneously there. Um, so I wondered whether you can um, tell us a little bit more about, you know, your sibling relations and how that's like, you know, marked by uh, pain, competition, like hierarchy that stems from uh, the parental upbringing um, and other uh, things like that and uh, how uh, that uh, figured it within your own work and seeing like a child. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, yeah, I mean, it, so, it, yeah, no, it, just as, a, as you had said, I mean, the, this question within the liberal West of seeing the, the, the child as this kind of unique individual that, uh, or even within the, the, the psychoanalytic literature to see that the sibling who comes in as a threat to the uniqueness of the first child, right? <laughs> Like so, that second sibling becomes the murderous one who's going to actually take the place of the first one, right? So, so there's a way in which even as the sibling does emerge in psychoanalysis, it also um, becomes uh, it it, it still hinges around this question of uniqueness, right? Um, And uh, like within the anthropological literature, the sibling relation is 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 actually quite important. Um, in particular sibling relations um, because of uh, because of genealogical kinship. So that sibling relation would only be um, it, it gains significance because of um, the inheritance of property right within the genealogical kinship regime. So um, but you know I yeah I mean I think that what uh, what I was trying to s- what I kind of discovered with my um, writing through this is really that, that, you know, just as you were talking about in terms of us learning German, like the kids learning German, it was actually the fact it's children's play, right. With each other, right. The, the fact that we, um, you know, had this, we created this play world, like through German, right. That, 
where we <laughs> we just say German words to each other, right? So like, and mix in German, English, German, but, and it would be this really just quite funny, <laughs> um, you know, just constantly joking banter, constant banter of German uh, with each other, right? And it's that that actually is not simply, it doesn't fit within the legal regime of inheritance of property, right? It's not a question of like the subsumption of the unique individual by the sibling and, you know, this kind of, but rather like, well, what is actually created through this, through this play? It's a, it's, it is a, a different world. And it actually, in, in, in a way, I started to think of it as one that in fact animated, it kind of gave life to our domestic when our domestic was so was a dying space, um, you know, and 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 that actually kept us alive on, in some ways. And so, when I think about the way in which we um, we might understand memory here, like uh, or inheritance, um, it's it, it it actually kind of came to me when I was listening to one of our um, students uh, give a paper on. Um, uh, th- this really amazing book, Nyanika Mukherjee's um, uh, book, The Spectral Wound, um, her, her work on um, the uh, um, looking at the, the, the mass rape that had happened at, at, in, the, in the context of the partition of Bangladesh and Pakistan. Um, and, and, um, and actually, so, um, you know, Swayam Bagaria had given this very nice paper has since been published um, on really asking like, well, maybe it's not a question of, you know, um, like who inherits this, right? Who inherits this event? But maybe it, it, the question is, is um, you know, how is it that words bear memory? Do words themselves become encrusted with experience? So, and, and that actually was like, oh my gosh, like hearing that actually made me realize that what I had been writing at the time wasn't so much a question of who is inheriting, um, you know, this, this violence or this catastrophe, but rather, um, you know, as if one would be deemed to actually write the book on this, but rather that actually, um, like what inherits uh, memory? Like, and that can it be that German in a way for our household um, came to be the link, like the, those German words for ourselves. I'm not saying in a general sense or abstractly, but I'm saying for ourselves um, came to be encrusted with the experience of affliction. And it is in saying these words, right. That, you know, that actually, um, and we continue to use these words amongst ourselves now, right that bear witness to that history, right? It's the words that are bearing the witness, right? And, 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 and that I think um, was, was just such a, like actually kind of quite amazing, um, um, like insight that I felt kind of immersed in, just in this milieu of writing um, and just being in conversation with others. So, that 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 was the first one. I was like, oh wow, this is this is what inherits. This is a question of words actually bearing witness. Um, the um, the second was actually, you know, this kind of goes back to this discussion of um, self knowledge and anthropological knowledge, and 
um, which is around this question of separateness. And I've, I've actually thought through the question of separateness within my own, within my, my research and um, other research that, you know, um, in, in, in Santiago and around um, how do we think through care uh, in the context of, you know, multiple um, persistent crises um, situations in which, for example, um, you know, you have the a woman. You know, maybe the 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 main kind of the one who has like the the stable job and in a very large network of of kin, um, and so she she's responsible both for her own household, but also her sisters, and her, she's constantly putting out fires everywhere else, right? And how do we actually think about this question of separateness in the context in which everyone is actually, um, you know, kind of you know dependent on you, right? And uh, and, 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 but, you know, I think that what, and when is it that you're actually, you can't help anymore, right? And so this is, I think, you know, the, the, this dawning of separateness, or we might say, um, really f- happens, um, you know, as I'm writing, you know, is, is it, within the writing is, is with my, with my twin brother, right? Where I describe how it is that, I mean, these are the most quotidian of things, right? It's like the most quotidian scene in which, you know, you know, I, my brother is like not able to write his college essay. He's just really blocked, you know, and I'm like shaking him. Right. And I think I'm thinking to myself, just like write anything, you know, like we need to get out of this madness, write anything. And it's, and it's like, there's nothing that I can do. Like absolutely nothing that I can do to make it such that the words live in my brother again, right? And it was this kind of uh, just feeling of utter, like that I that I'm actually helpless. Like this is not just um, you know a question of ignorance, or it's not just a question of you know defiance or just like frustration. It's just like actually, there's nothing more I can do, right? And uh, and, and that, but that's, there's always that question. It's never simply just a settled question, you know, issue. Like, no, there's nothing I can do. It's, that's the problem. It's like, you don't know. Right. And so I think it's this question of um, this, this dawning of separateness actually is, you know, I, I think it kind of emerges to me, um, you know, I think with most clearly in this, in the book and, and with my twin brother and, and also with my sister. Right. Um, but I think that I don't, I don't think I had a way of really quite understanding that uh, or being aware, uh, awake to it, if you will, had I not actually been, as I, again, has I, had I not actually been reading and engaging with these questions of separateness in my research in Chile and in the wider discussion, like, for example, with Vina Doss's work um, around um, and Stanley Cavello's work on, 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 on um, you know, finite responsibility, right? So, so it's, it, it's just, it's like when you read something and you, re- it's, you realize like, whoa, like this is like a moment in which the anthropological work, like this writing actually has the power to actually reveal aspects of your own life to yourself, right? And, and, and that I thought was really um, quite interesting. So, yeah. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting, and that actually reminds me of. Have you read On My Martuxo, like by Paguanso? I think an English t- t- uh, translation is Mother's Steak by Paguanso. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. As you were, um, you know, uh, talking about it, uh, I, uh, it really reminded me of, uh, how like in the first two, cha- uh, two like pages, uh, like Pagwansa's like mother figure. So she later uh, goes on to take care of her mother, but then right now, like her daughter almost dies from a fire, and then uh, she basically talks about how you know, like she thought like she was connected to her daughter, uh, because she gave birth, but then that was the moment when she realized the separateness so you know but like she had this a uh, promotion that like uh, the daughter was in trouble of some kind so there was you know the care that like intertwined them but at the same time it was an incredibly like limited um you know a uh, care that separated her from her daughter and then like later her mother so yeah it just really reminded me of uh yeah mother's state by pa Guanzo. yeah um but yeah, it's uh, it's really beautiful, and thank you, thank you so much for uh, yeah, telling it to like uh, us like in the in the audience as well uh, during this podcast. And uh, yeah, speaking of uh, care, uh, I actually uh did like I actually did research on um domestic work and uh care work uh, as a master's student. So I was uh particularly like intrigued uh by your relationship with your sister. And um, yeah, and uh, especially uh, how you talked about lethality of care and how this, you know, was gendered within your family, but also your fear of reproduction as well. Like and how your sister also um, experienced the same thing uh, that, you know, if you uh, give birth, then, uh, you know, way like your uh, existence will be erased and how you loved your sister really intensely. And then you talked about this to just now about, you know, like how you like really care for each other and it's like a consuming care. But then at the same time, there is this fear of uh, this obliterating your existence. Um, so this coexistence of like care and lethality as well as uh, reproduction. Um, so I actually wondered whether uh, you could tell us uh, more about that because I found that to be really fascinating part of your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is actually, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that I actually had actually, um, let me just put it this way, like in my, in my previous work uh, in, in Chile, I don't think that I actually had been sufficiently aware of this uh, question of, of lethality and care. Um, I mean, and it, care is actually, I mean, so, you know, we might think of care in terms of um, like this attentiveness, right. To others, right. Or the fact that, you know, uh, the feminist theorist of care who would say, well, we're all interdependent. Right, you know, this is, we have to acknowledge that kind of that interdependence, right? Um, or you, or like the critique of, of liberal, uh, you know, individualism, or um, like even the kind of forms of political activi- political activism can take predicated on our liberal subject because care actually shows us uh, the dependency uh, that we are already in. So, for example, Eva Feder Kate saying, for example, you know, my, you know my daughter who has, uh, you know, serious, um, uh, you know, mental, uh, uh, you know, disabilities, uh, would not be able to actually, um, participate in an identity politics, right. Go lobbying and so forth. She needs an advocate, right. And what, so then what, how does that actually shift the picture of the, of this kind of, how does this actually destabilize a liberal, uh, you know, uh, an identity t- politics predicated on a liberal subject, right. So, 
Um, but, you know, I think that one, what was kind of perhaps less kind of seen within that literature is this lethality to care, which is that, you know, and I kind of describe it as that, which actually can, you know, unleash, unleash and, you know, the most lethal aspects of ourselves, um, that care, that the very physicality of care, um, the, 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 you know, just having to kind of be in this kind of take care of somebody in that way of can actually really kind of bring out some of the worst, most horrible aspects of yourself. And that, that this, I would almost think of it as like almost like this dark lagoon that's just, um, uh, waiting to kind of you know kind of seep out into everything and it's not so much that it's like this other is going to consume me or like the child's going to eat me you know this kind of thing but rather that it's like that this very care could make me unintelligible to myself that I would become unrecognizable to myself because of the physicality and not just because of this dark lagoon of that of, of lethality that actually would be coming up within me with respect to care. And I think, um, and so that I, 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 you know, I, I, I think it, I don't want to kind of give the impression and perhaps I did a little bit too much in that book, but it's not just that there's a question of um, disproportionate or gendered caregiving. I mean, that just had to happen because my mother is, you know, a woman and me and my sister are, and there's, issues, the concrete issues around taking care of somebody who's in a vegetative state, like changing clothes, like giving showers and these kind of things that, you know, we just couldn't ask my twin brother to do, like to do that would be so painful for him and for us and for my mother, you know? So they're just things that we would just boundaries that you simply wouldn't ever cross. And so it wasn't simply like, Oh, well, boys don't do this. Girls do this. It was like, no, it's actually like, this is how we take care of each other. We're going to do this, right? So that we are recognizable to ourselves still. So my brother is put into that position of doing this. Um, and so it's, it, and so, you know, I think when, so it was not so much, you know, I think that there, but there is something here about, um, you know, the, the, the fact of, that kind of what, again, you know, this, this idea of full-blown care, right. That, that is involved, not just with taking care of somebody who's that sick, like my mother, but is involved with having children, you know, that, um, that places in some ways, the woman in this situation of, of, of just that kind of care. I mean, it's just not. And so that in a way that, for a long time, I felt that would, you know, that particular, that felt that full blown care would actually bring out that would, would annihilate me because it would be from not just from the outside, it would be from within myself. That, that those aspects of that, that which is there already, it would actually annihilate me. And so there, it's that question of the lethality of care that in relation to self-knowledge, right. That, that I actually, um, in some ways discovered, uh, 
by just even talking to my sister about the facts, like why, why were, why do you not want to have children? Or like, what did you think of that? Like, or, you know, and that there was some way in which uh, reproduction and lethality uh, were linked um, for us in the context of our lives, not just in general or not for other people, but like just in the context of our lives that it came to be linked in this way. Mm, yeah, oh, I see. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for, yeah, again, like clarifying this with us. Yeah, I was um maybe in like a different context. Yeah, I guess like it is in a different context. But uh, I guess like for my own work, I was uh, also thinking about uh, how like care is often talked about within the confine of white respectability. Um, I guess if in ethnic studies, like you don't really see that as often. Um, but then I was like still a little like you know disturbed by how in the very dominant um scholarship about care, it is like you know dominated by like white females who want to like elevate the work of care, and you know care is has this like really like moral like connotation of that often like ex exclude, you know, like women of color from their framework. Um, so I think like when I was, uh, you know, reading your work, uh, I was, um, you know, thinking about like, I didn't think about this in terms of like lethality, but I think, you know, there is some like connection there um, to, you know, how like morality, like often consumes the uh, discourses on care. Uh, so yeah, thank, thank you so much for um, yeah telling us more about the context though. Uh, it was uh, really illuminating. Yeah. Um, and I have taken up uh, a lot of your time. So I see that the time is like almost up. Um, but uh, yeah, there was, a, there is a final question um, that I wanted to ask you. And that is, uh, what is your next book project? Um, uh, yeah, can you tell us about the uh, interesting work that you're doing now that you have finished your book? Um, so, ugh, yeah. so, so many projects. I mean, I think that... Um, so there's, I mean, we, there's like, I mean, actually a couple different directions. Like one is I am actually um, writing um, two different papers. So I don't know if it's going to actually turn into a book. I mean, these are going to be for edited volumes, but one, but basically looking at um, the, the way in which um, um, Ella is uh, the, the in, in some ways, the way in which Ella is actually, um, learning death at dying my daughter um and so i just uh so and, and also to kind of really get us to rethink um dementia and the discussion around dementia in um in anthropology and kind of more broadly in the humanities um as not one that isn't simply just a question of um you know memory and recognition and so forth, you know, but what it is actually have, you know, be in dementia, like all of us be in dementia in the sense of, a, you know, we might think of it more as a terminal disease in which like all of, all of your bodily functions actually deteriorate. So you, you completely um, kind of unravel um, and what it is for Ella to actually um, learn this. Um, so, um, and so that's, I've been kind of working on that. I mean, obviously this is difficult in the midst of a pandemic when <laughs> there is no childcare and, um, so caregiving is difficult too for my father. So, so, but yeah, I, uh, so, you know, so that's one of the, that, that's one area that I've 
um, been working on. The other uh, is the this very, very large study that uh, Vina Das and I are actually uh, working on um, across five countries uh, with multiple teams um, to look at um, uh, um, basically how it is that households are um, um, kind of how it is that households are responding to um, COVID pandemic measures, low-income households in five different countries. So I'm actually, um, so this is Chile, Brazil, India, China, and South Korea, in fact. Um, and so we've been doing, because we can't do face-to-face uh, research, we've been doing um, um, like WhatsApp <laughs> video calls with people that, uh, with the people that we, you know, uh, participants that you know, people that we've actually known for a very long time in our field sites. This is one of the kind of things that, you know, anthropology keeps in touch and actually has very deep connections with the people that we, we work with. Um, and so we've actually gone back to the neighborhoods uh, that we've worked in long-term um, and actually have been following the families. We did um, household surveys and interviews every other week for uh, five months uh, and then I've been doing monthly follow-up interviews. So this um, this research has actually been really, um, and you know, I'm primarily working in um, in Chile. Um, and then we have graduate students uh, in uh, who are doing working in uh, South Korea. Uh, but but this has been a huge huge undertaking and um, one that hopefully will will actually be able to kind of uh, share with the public. Uh, as, as we as we do more data analysis but so it's like lots of different directions in terms of projects <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah 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 thank thank you so much for sharing and they both sound really important um and with the with the first one we didn't really get to talk about this in the uh interview i did really appreciate how in the uh in part four mother tongue uh, you give details on how Ella's learning loss and affliction and I really especially love like the metaphors you know the tree metaphor and then how uh, it you should also like picks up on like you know simple details about you know like your father and uh, as she learns about yeah loss and affliction um so I really looking forward to you know uh, reading it when it comes out and then the second project also sounds really amazing as well and I'm really curious because yeah like Brazil and Chile and the South Korea I imagine are very different context um so it would be really interesting to see what results come out from uh, you know the uh, surveys and interviews that you're conducting with different households oh you yeah, know it's, it's gonna it's been very very interesting i mean because the pandemic measures also have been so different i mean between for example chile brazil and for example south korea i mean with the kind of surveillance that's in china we also try to help them so it, this surveillance is uh is quite different um and the the so you know and the ways in which one relates to the state is you know is is very different so um also the political context i mean this although there's a there's actually a lot to 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 look at and so hopefully we'll be able to share that more yeah. once we yeah definitely i can imagine yeah <laughs> yeah yeah a lot of like historical like political like social policy um and also like individual uh, i guess relational like a lot of things that you can look into yeah uh, uh but thank you so much for the podcast and the interview uh, we really appreciate your time and uh yeah i cannot wait to like read your next work <laughs> oh, thank you thank you so much Dan. <laughs> thank you
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.